Thank you so much. We're in a, a sermon series at the moment, which we started last week, and it's called The Jesus Manifesto. And we're looking at Isaiah 61, this wonderful passage in um, the prophecy of Isaiah, which kind of helps us think through what it means to bring hope to our city. And I'm going to read uh, the first part of Isaiah 61 right now. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness from the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And we're going to be looking today at that particular section. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I want to speak today about how to change a city. I wonder of how many of us today here right now um, in London in 2018 feel about the idea that you might have the potential to have an impact on this city, that the way that you live and speak and act and pray might transform things in your street, your workplace, your home, your university, when you're with your friends or your family or your colleagues. Because sometimes we might doubt that we could have an impact. I can feel like that sometimes. You know, it's a city of 8.7 million people, 8.1 million people don't go to church. So it can feel like I need to be embarrassed a little bit uh, by my faith sometimes. So I'm very happy to read the Bible on the tube. I'm also quite relieved I can just take out my phone and read it there like this. I don't have to pull out this in the middle of the district line at seven o'clock in the morning and start wading through it so everyone starts wondering, what's he doing? You know, I'm very ha- you might be very happy to pray at work, but you might, you might you know, keep your eyes wide open and, um, and not move your mouth and just say, like, I'm praying, but I'm just going to do it quietly under my breath and not let anyone know what's actually going on. I've done that before as well. And you might, you might long to kind of be open about your faith amongst your colleagues or your friends or your family, but, but what that sometimes looks like is, you know, getting through probation, making sure your boss likes you, and then when you've really proved yourself in your sector, you know, after about five years, when everyone knows you're very competent at your job and there's no risk of you being fired, on Monday, over coffee on a Monday morning, when someone asks how your weekend was, you, say, you, might, you might dare to say, went to church. Um, <laughs> And so it can feel like we, we might be, um, it's hard for us to think what it would look like to transform this city because we feel like a bit of a minority. And that's why this passage is so powerful. Because these words were written to give comfort to the people of Israel when they were in exile, when they were in fact a minority in a different city whose culture and values and faith were not the same as theirs. And it's words which gave them hope that God would act one day to restore things, to change things, to transform things. And it's a prophecy which was fulfilled in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus and is still being fulfilled today. Jesus, when he started his public ministry, walked into the synagogue in Nazareth, unfurled the scroll of Isaiah, and came to these words and read them out, declaring them at the start of his public ministry. So it's something giving hope to a minority. It's something that Jesus declares, and therefore it's the perfect place for us to start, to have as our touchstone, our manifesto, our guide, as we seek to think through what it means to live out our faith in London in 2018. And it's an absolutely fascinating passage. 
Because the church has always been at its most creative, its most influential, and its most dynamic. Actually, when it's been in a place of acting as a minority under pressure. That's when God often does remarkable things by his spirit through his church. That's when we have the potential to really transform things in our city, not by seizing the levers of power, but by praying for our city, seeking to serve our city, and seeking to live lives which are distinct in a way that make people see there's something different about those people. Look at how they bless the city. Look at how they seek to shape the city. Look at how they seek to season the culture and the values of our city. And that's what we're going to look at today. So the first thing we see in this uh, passage is if we're going to bring change to our city, we need to bind up and bring in. Isaiah writes, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. He's anointed me to preach good news. He's sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Words that Jesus, you know, Jesus embodies Jesus is sent to bind up the brokenhearted. And we all face heartbreak. Right across this city, people are facing heartbreak. And, and, and the word brokenhearted covers every kind of emotional, spiritual, relational, professional, financial pressure that might come upon our hearts and cause them to fracture, cause them to splinter, cause them to break off. I'm going to demonstrate this with Josh. If Josh wants to come up, would you give a warm welcome to Josh? Now, Josh has got a very big heart. Look, here he is. Thank, thank you, Josh. If you'd like to come up here, that's perfect. There we go. Brilliant. So Josh has got a very big heart, and he might have a big heart, but what happens in life, I don't know if you've experienced this, most people experience this in one area, that you face something. Maybe it's something someone else does. Maybe it's a circumstance in your life. Maybe it's something you do to yourself that causes your heart to fracture. So maybe it's disappointment. Something you longed for doesn't quite come to pass. You longed for that promotion or that job, and you were passed over or it was given to something, someone else. You, you got the job, maybe, but it wasn't all you hoped it had been. And what you'd set your heart on now causes you disappointment. Maybe it's that um, a relationship that you longed for, but actually, and you put all your hope in, but it's fallen away. It's not what you had hoped it would be for. Maybe something you longed to happen hasn't happened. And what we know is that hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. Maybe it's separation, that someone you really care about has moved continents or moved nations or moved cities. Someone you long to spend the rest of your life with, that's not possible anymore. Maybe someone you cared for and prayed for has died. And it can make your heart under pressure. It can cause that pain. Maybe it's betrayal. Someone you really loved or trusted has let you down. They've betrayed you. Maybe they've spoken about you behind your back or they've undermined you in some way. And you're like, I can't believe that has caused an impact which has caused your heart to fracture. It can come from all sorts of different ways. But what's interesting is that people tend to respond to broken hearts in one of two ways. They either become full of despair, in which case they can appear quite weak. You can appear quite weak. You know, we all respond to, you, you, be, you become so burdened by the heartbreak and it impacts you in such a way that you, it starts to define you and it starts to define your expectations and your hopes and you can't quite get past it and the heartbreak starts to weaken you and so someone who responds in that way can look quite weak. But there's another way of responding to heartbreak 
And that's to suffer the heartbreak and to resolve within yourself that you will never put yourself in a position of vulnerability again. And to resolve that, therefore, what you will do in the future is you will ensure that you are the strongest, you are the most powerful, you are the richest, you are the most successful, the most attractive person in any room in which you're in. And so you respond to heartbreak by making sure that you're never heartbroken again. But neither of those responses enables your heart to heal and enables you to feel whole. They look very different. One looks like great weakness, one that looks like great strength. But actually, they're both symptoms of the same root cause, which is that you're suffering from a broken heart. Some people you meet, and it's obvious, oh, they're brokenhearted. Some people you meet could be the most successful people in their sectors, leading great companies, having great influence. And yet what's driven them to get to that place is actually a broken heart. And it's really interesting, so what do you do? Because when you're suffering from a broken heart, it's actually the hardest place to trust God because you know, when you're in this place, you kind of think, well, you know, if God really loved me, then I wouldn't be feeling like this. If God was close by, then I wouldn't be experiencing this disappointment. If God cared for me, he would have never have let this happen. And therefore, when you most need God's love is when you're most at risk of not trusting him and not receiving from him. But what we know is that when you suffer heartbreak, Jesus is very close. Why is that? Well, it says that the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. So Jesus was sent to bind up the brokenhearted. Now, if you want to bind up a broken heart, you know, to bind up actually means to bandage. And the thing is, you can't bandage a wound from a distance. Don't you've ever tried that. You know, sometimes we do try it. We kind of, someone we love or we care for gets in a spot of bother, but we're quite busy at work. There's a lot going on in our lives. Not sure if I can really handle this today. So we send a text that says, you know, thoughts and prayers, kiss. You've, I've sent texts like that. You might have received texts like that. And it's fine, but it's, it's not really going to help. It's a little bit like throwing bandages from a distance. I mean, you can do it, but it's not going to help. I mean, you just <laughs> hope something sticks, but it's not really making an impact. <laughs> Jesus is sent to bind up the brokenhearted. And if we're going to apply a bandage, you have to get close. So what we know is that when Jesus comes to bandage our hearts, he has to be close. Often people think, oh, no, no, there's no way Jesus could be close. There's no way Jesus could love me because of what I've suffered. But often what this passage tells us is that when you're suffering from a broken heart, it's one of the times you can be sure that Jesus is close by you because he's been sent to bandage broken hearts. And you can know he's right by you, pouring out his love and enabling your heart to be restored. Would you give a round of applause to Josh? If you're going to bind up a broken heart, you have to come close. It says in Psalm 34, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. God is close to the brokenhearted and those who are suffering. 
And your broken heart doesn't disqualify you from being used by God. Sometimes people think that, oh, I've suffered this difficulty, I've suffered this pain. That means God can't want to use me. God, God wants to bind you up so you can bind others up. And I find this really challenging for myself. You know, there's so many brokenhearted people in my city. Some of them look like it. Some of them are expert at hiding it. Will I get close enough to help them? You can't bandage the wound from a distance. Will I get close enough to help them? But there's a risk involved in that. Like sometimes people are a little bit complicated. What's the cost I'm going to have to incur? What will other people think? And it's fascinating that Jesus wasn't afraid of getting close to other people, that are, getting close to people that other people considered complicated or broken or difficult or dodgy. In Mark 2, you know, he's criticized by the religious leaders for meeting and welcoming sinners, people whose lives were obviously complicated, and even eating with them. And it's interesting, I find that challenging. I still remember when Beth and I first moved to London. We lived in Tower Hamlets in the heart of East London. And we went to church. And we came along to this church, and we didn't know anyone there. And we turned up, and the preacher got up to preach. And he looked seriously dangerous. And I was kind of looking at this guy, thinking, oh, this is interesting. This is different. And then he started this sermon on worry. And he said, I've had quite a difficult week. Uh, on Friday, uh, a guy drove a van into the warehouse where I woke, work, and he got out, and he started stealing tires from my warehouse. And I thought, I'm not having this. I'm not going to let him do this. So I went over, and I challenged him, like, what do you think you're doing? You're stealing from my warehouse. And the guy pulled out an axe. He said, don't mess with me. So I backed off a little bit. Um, but then he said, I thought, I thought, well, I've got to do something about it. So I came back, and I started to close the shutters on our warehouse. And the shutters started coming down. And so this guy jumped out of his van again and punched him in the face and knocked me down. Um, and he managed to drive his van out. He said, I got up and I thought, I'm not having this. I'm going after him. At this point, the congregation is like. <laughs> so he runs out after this guy. He says, I got out onto the street. I saw the van was stuck in traffic. I ran up beside it. I went in front of the van and said, stop, you've assaulted me. I reached over. I grabbed his windscreen wipers. I pulled them off. I used them to smash through the windscreen on the front of his van. I reached through it. I took the keys out of the ignition. I threw them on the pavement and I grabbed him, pulled him out through the windscreen over the bonnet and threw him on the side. Everyone is like... <laughs> so you'll never believe what happened then. The police turned up and they said I might have used excessive force. Everyone's like... He said, I got arrested. I got taken to the police station. They're asking me loads of questions. My boss is worried about the impact it might have because he's worried this gang will try and seek retaliation. So I'm suspended from work. I've got to face a police interview. So it's been quite a stressful week. But I imagine we've all had weeks like that. <laughs> Not so much. I thought, this is different. Then over coffee, I went up to a guy. He said, how are you doing? You new here? I said, yeah. And he said, what, what, do you do? what do you do for a living? I said, I'm embarrassed. He said, you're a barrister? I said, yeah. He said, oh, I need a barrister next week. And I said, I said no, 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 I, I'm actually kind of specialize in, in defending serious crime. He said, perfect. <laughs> I said, oh, well, I've, I've just started doing my, my job. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm the right person. He said, no, I'll get you while you're cheap. I was like, <laughs> I was like is this a hypothetical conversation? Let's have a coffee at the back of church. Beth and I came away. We're like, this is complicated. But actually... We stayed there for seven years, and those people became some of the best friends in our lives. Because everyone, if we're honest, is complicated. Some of us are very good at hiding it. We bury it in our hearts, and we put on a really great facade. Some people, it's right out there for everyone to see. 
Are you willing to get close to the brokenhearted, to bind up people in this city? Are you prepared to get close to people whose lives are a bit complicated? Lean in when other people lean out, to step forward when others step away. Because unless you're near the broken, you can't bandage the wound. I'm so impressed by the people in this church who set up caring for ex-offenders and, and support people when they come out of prison, who go into prisons right across London and run alpha courses, who come alongside the least, the last, the lost in our city and try and bless them, bind up the brokenhearted. But we can all do that in our workplace tomorrow. That difficult colleague might just be suffering from a broken heart. You know, sometimes people with broken hearts try to break other people's broken, try to break other people's hearts. But we can make a difference in this city. So bind up, but also bring in to the light. It says a release from darkness for the prisoners. That's sometimes translated as give light to the blind, that the people walking in darkness need to see the light. And that was my experience. I found life very confusing. I just found it confusing. Couldn't understand why I kept getting into trouble. I needed the light of Jesus in my life. Now, eight millions of people in the city, not just numbers, colleagues, friends, family members, you know, need the light. It doesn't look like it. They've got great jobs, great social lives. But essentially, it's trying to make sense of life without knowing the most important thing about life. And often people are just searching for life. You might, for, for light. You might be here today, first time, second time. You might think, yeah, I'm looking for light. You know, I've tried career. That was fine. It was good. But, you know, after my first or second promotion, I realized that's not going to be enough to fully satisfy me. There's not enough light there. I tried a romantic relationship, and that's great. Nothing wrong with it. It was good, but it wasn't enough to satisfy me. That wasn't the source of the light I needed. You know, I tried other things. I tried great holidays. I tried swimming with turtles off the coast of Zanzibar. I really enjoyed that, but it wasn't enough for me. I needed a stronger source of light. You might be here today, and that might be how it feels for you. It's a little bit like being in a dark room, just trying to work out where the light switch is. When I was training to be a vicar, um, I was based in Cambridge. And in Cambridge, they have one of the biggest libraries in the world, actually. It's like a complete maze. You can walk for miles and still be in it. And one of the books I had to find was a, 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 just seemed to be in the, you know, the deepest dungeon in the furthest point. And I was kind of scrabbling around this library trying to find it. And then I walked in one room. And as the door closed behind me, I suddenly realized that the room was getting darker and darker and darker. And then as the door closed, the room went almost pitch black. There was just one little bit of light streaming through. And so I was kind of, you know, as you do when you're in a dark room, you're kind of, you know, you start, you start adopting a different pose to kind of mean you don't bump into things. You start walking around like this because you can't really see what's going on. And you're just reaching for the light switch. So I was reaching for the light switch. Where's the light switch? Where have they put the light switch? Where have they put the light switch? And the light hunting around for ages. Couldn't find it by the door. Couldn't find it by the other door. Like, so I'm like crawling around in the dark. So I think, I'll oh, just get the book and get out. So I'm like reaching all these bookshelves, trying to read as much as I can in the dark. Where's the book? Where's that book? Picking various books off, putting it right up to my eyes. No, that's not the right one. That's not the right one. Where is this book? Where's the light switch? And then at that moment, the kind of door opened a crack and someone said, are you okay? And because I'm English, I said, yes, I'm fine. <laughs> and they said, would you, would, you, would you like me to turn the light on? I felt like saying, no, I'm a nocturnal creature. 
Um, this is just, yes, yes, could you turn the light on? That'd be great. So they then turned the light on, and suddenly I could see everything. And I said, where's the light switch? And they said, oh, they put it in a slightly unusual place. It's on the inside of the bookshelves half the way along. I was like, who did that? That's really hard to find. See, the thing is, lots of us spend a lot of our lives scrabbling around in the dark trying to find the light switch. I think we know who the light is. We know where he is to be found. Lots of us have encountered Jesus. And we can help our friends, our colleagues, our family members, people we know, to find the light. We can show them to the light switch. They have to make the decision whether to turn it on or not. But we can help them find the light. That's why we run Alpha here as a church. Because we are passionate about giving people the opportunity to discover and develop a relationship with Jesus. Because he's the light of the world. And when you encounter him, the world makes sense in an entirely different way. It's like switching on the light switch. And it's so important because this passage talks about bind up the brokenhearted, bringing them into the light. But they're not separate things, they're connected. Because unless people don't care what you know until they know how much you care. But once people know how much you care, if you care about someone, it's strange if you don't then share with them what you know when what you know has such an impact on the whole of their lives. Bind up the brokenhearted. Bring them into the light. That's how we will start to transform this city. But then also proclaim freedom and favor. The Lord has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives, the year of the Lord's favor. It's a promise in the Old Testament that was never fully fulfilled. And Jesus, we see by his words and his deeds, declares freedom and favor. When he unfurls this passage in the synagogue in Nazareth, he starts reading from it and declares the start of his public ministry. That it's going to be about freedom and the year of the Lord's favor. And it's interesting because it makes a difference who you are when you make a declaration like this. Only certain people have the authority to announce certain things. Jesus is the Lord. If he says it's the year of the Lord's favor... It's the year of the Lord's favor. It's in his authority to say it. If Jesus says it is, then it is. And it's no longer something hoped for. It's something which has happened, something which has changed, something which has shifted in the structure of the universe to make it come to pass. But it still has to be declared and proclaimed. It still has to be announced to people. It makes a difference when you announce to people that there's freedom and that there's favor. One of the first cases I ever did as a, um, as a criminal barrister was a guy who was arrested and charged with smuggling a large amount of cannabis into the country, like millions of pounds worth of cannabis in the back of his van. He said he thought it was paint. And um, although there was actually quite a lot, there was evidence to really support his account, but you, ne you never know. And so we went through this trial, and I will never forget being in the courtroom as the jury came in and prepared to deliver their verdict. The foreman of the jury stood up and looked across the courtroom at him and he had to stand up and a grown man in the dock just shaking with fear. He's facing a five years, are the next five years going to be in a prison cell or not? And the, the head of the jury just said, we find you not guilty. And the kind of relief came over him, and he almost slumped in the dock. He kind of sat in the seat. And he sat there for a while, and then eventually the judge said, you're free to go. 
that the judge was announcing the result of the verdict, like you're free, you're free to go. You don't have to be here anymore. You don't have to be in the dock anymore. You don't have to be in prison or captivity anymore. You're free to go. And eventually he kind of heard this and he kind of got up and walked out of the court. Then I came out a bit later on and I found him still there in the lobby outside the court, slightly in a state of shock. And I was like, are you okay? And he was obviously still very shocked by the whole thing, couldn't believe that he was free. So after a while of talking to him, I said, look, you, just, you, you, need, to announce, you, need, to, you need to know this, you're free. So what you need to do is every day for the next five years, when you wake up first thing in the morning, just look yourself in the mirror and say, I'm a free man. I'm free. He kind of, kind of heard this. If something can have been happened, we can have been transferred from captivity to freedom, but we still have to declare it to our own hearts because sometimes we don't live that way. A guy in my alpha group once said something to me I've never forgotten. He had spent a number of years in prison. And he said he came out and he had this nice two-bedroom flat. He said, sometimes I sit there and I just look around and I think, do you know, this is just a prettier prison. It matters that you know that you are free and it matters you know the significance that you are free. You know, it's for freedom, Paul writes. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Jesus came that you might be free. He died on the cross so you might be free. So the chains of sin that held us might be broken. He wants us to live lives that are free from guilt, free from shame, free from the expectations of others and destructive habits, free from insecurity. Free, free, free. Freedom. And you have to proclaim it sometimes to yourself that you might know it and believe it. So powerful to announce it over ourselves to declare it over ourselves and each other, over the people of this city. You have freedom from the penalty of sin. You don't have to fear the day of the Lord's vengeance because of what Jesus has done. And when we place our trust in him, in his blood shed on the cross for us, we can know that we are free because it strips every power that would come against us. Because we stand in the authority of the one who took the worst the evil had to throw at us and threw it back destroyed it, defeated it, you're free. And the promise is not of fairness. You know, so often, so many of our complaints, whether we're three or 30, are about fairness. Like, it's not fair. It's not fair that person got that opportunity instead of me. It's not fair they got to get that wage increase instead of me. It's not fair they got that bonus instead of me. It's not fair that person fell for that person instead of me. It's not fair that they got picked for that project instead of me. It's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair. But is that what we really hope for? Is that the height of our hope? That we might be treated with fairness? You know, the year of the Lord's favor is a year which was anticipated to completely blow apart the social structures and the expectations of that community. A year of unprecedented restoration and blessing where even if people had made mistakes, turned away, lost their land, they could be restored. A year of freedom and favor. God's undeserved blessing, unmerited grace. And I have to be honest with you, I'm not sure favor is going to cut it for me. I'm not sure fairness is going to cut it for me. I don't think fairness is going to help. If fairness is being treated as I deserve, and I've messed up too many times, I've done things I shouldn't have done. I've not done things I should have done. I don't think getting what I deserve is going to end well. But if God treats me better than I deserve, that's favor. 
that God doesn't just forgive you. Miracle though that is, he's pleased with you. He looks upon you with favor because of what Jesus has done on the cross. He looks on you with favor. His favor is working for you. The amazing thing, he doesn't just forgive you. He restores his purposes in your life. He's powerful even to take our mistakes and our failures and turn them into favor for him and for us to restore his purposes in our lives, to use things that even were intended for harm and turn them for good. And when you experience that, it changes things. When you declare that, it changes things. When you remind yourself of that, when you announce that to yourself in the morning, it changes things. And here's the thing. This is what you can announce to yourself. This is the year of the Lord's favor. In the Old Testament, it was anticipated but never actually fulfilled. But this is the year of the Lord's favor because every year from the year that Jesus died and rose again to the year he comes again in glory is the year of the Lord's favor. He is for you. The Lord is for you. His spirit is on you. He has anointed you to preach good news to the poor. Someone needs to hear that today, that he has sent you to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, release for the prisoners, to declare to this city that this is the year of the Lord's favor, that they can know not just that God forgives them, but that he is pleased with them, that he is for them, that he loves them, that he treats them not like someone who's far off, but that he is willing to welcome people home as a much-loved daughter, a much-loved son of the Most High God. And we can go and we can proclaim to the city that there is freedom for everything that would help people captive, that your heart, which is broken and fractured, can be bound up And that this year is the year of the Lord's favor, that we can declare that for our church, for our city, and right across this nation. In Jesus' name. Amen.